Greetings everyone and welcome back to another episode of Plan B Success. We have Victoria Wick with us today and she's joining us all the way from San Diego, California. And Victoria is an author and more importantly a jewelry designer. But before that, just like everybody else, you know, she went to school, got her degrees, went into corporate America and then she made her pivot. So let's learn about Victoria and her story from herself. So welcome, Victoria. Uh, so glad to be here. I'm excited to share uh, an amazing conversation with you. I love the, uh, the whole thought of plan B because it's exactly what happened to me. Awesome. So in your words, tell us a little bit about yourself. So um, I grew up in South Korea in a very small, sleepy little town uh, by the beach, uh, seaside village. It was very idyllic, you know, at the time, we had everything we kind of needed or in the child's mind, uh, you have everything you need. You have food, you have parents, you know, you have the beach, what else can you ask for? Uh, but my, my parents had a different dream in that um, at that time in South Korea, uh, girls were not, um, how would I say, it? they preferred boys. And um, my parents, you know, had a larger than most people's homes and people used to think that that our home was like the orphanage. There was an orphanage behind us, but a hundred percent of the kids that were being dropped off in front of our door were little infants, girls. So my father, who had four girls, decided that um, the dream life for his daughters would be uh, better fulfilled, you know, coming to America. So we came to America, and uh, lo and behold, he found out the very next day that uh, all his assets were frozen in both countries, and that the money transferred over got frozen, and the money that we left behind got uh, frozen. So we started our lives with 30 bucks at that time, which was, uh, as you can imagine, uh, it was pretty rough for a few years. And, um, you know, I was told um, over and over again, the, the fastest path to the American dream was to get hyper-educated and to get uh, jobs with a lot of upward mobility. Uh, you know, if you could, if your kid was smart enough, there could be a doctor, lawyer, you know, all these other things. And um, so I tried it. I did it. I was a great student. I, uh, you know, really killed myself to learn to speak English, uh, make friends, uh, get great grades. Uh, I graduated at the top of my class. I actually uh, went to UCLA and USC, got top jobs. And um, what I found was that after I got promoted a couple of times, I was really suffocating in terms of emotional freedom. Um, I felt like I didn't really have freedom. I was told what to do almost every day, you know, how to achieve success for the company. And then if you should do all those things, uh, you get a little raise, you know, in exchange for even more hours. <laughs> so it was, I felt like I was fighting the rat race. So one day um, I, I literally had a burnout because I was uh, commuting about 90, 90 minutes each way. So, I just thought that that was not sustainable. And I was doing the same thing to my parents, uh, to, to my kids that my parents were doing to me, which was they uh, left uh, their kids, their five kids at home to fend themselves for themselves because you, because they had no choice. I had a choice and I was doing that with my kids. So I pretty much uh, quit kind of cold turkey that day and started my small business, which was my plan B. And as you know, the rest of it is, you know, it's pretty good. <laughs> so, you know, let's go, back to, let's go back and revisit where you got educated. You always wanted to pursue literature or art, but you ended up uh, going the business route. How did you choose business? 
Right. I didn't choose business. Uh, what happened was, um, you're right. I excelled in art and uh, literature. I, you know, I've always, when I grew up in South Korea, you know, the world is so small. I mean, we lived in a tiny little island uh, that didn't get any uh, TV connection. So we, even though we had a TV, we actually didn't have any access to news or anything. Um, so that's, that's what I thought I was going to be always. And then when, when I got plucked to America, uh, my father said that since I was the oldest of the five children um, in an Asian family, that, that comes with a huge responsibility, that um, I needed to get a real job. You know, artists, uh, according to him, didn't make any money until they died. And especially in America, where I didn't know anybody and I didn't know their taste in art, that I was never going to succeed. So he, he advised me strongly to go get a degree in business. So I did do that. I, I went ahead and got my degree uh, in economics at UCLA. And then um, after that, I really, it was like right around the recession time. And I, the other thing too is I really didn't love any of the jobs that I was offered, you know, such as like a loan officer trainee to sales trainee for this or that. I didn't really love any of the jobs that came with that degree. So I then went to get my degree, uh, you know, more, I got scholarships. So scholarship, actually I got some grants and scholarships and I, I was getting, you know, I was making actually a, a thousand bucks a month or something between all the different um, scholarships that I had plus my work. So I went to my graduate school and um, I was told there that marketing, my marketing professor there told me that I was not gonna be very good at marketing. <laughs> because I didn't understand the nuances of, uh, you know, what makes market great marketers uh, kind of uh, exceptional. He's, he didn't think I had that. So he asked me to just go ahead and get a degree. Uh, the professor, you know, suggested that I should get a degree in finance because that's more absolute and finite and that all I could always go, you know, become a CFO of somebody. And so I did that. I was, as you can see, I was a pretty good listener since I was young. <laughs> So I did that. And um, then I actually pursued, you know, after I graduated. So it wasn't like my choices at that time. But, um, you know, I listened to all the, the, the advisors and people who supposedly were, you know, more experienced than wise. And um, so none of that actually really worked out for me. So I ended up having to find a plan B. So how long did you work in corporate America? About five years. And, um, you know, I worked, I mean, I gave it a really good, I mean, I was actually good at this too, by the way, I took my old boss uh, from like $150 million to a $400 million company. I mean, it wasn't just me, but um, that company was also started out by a, an immigrant, an immigrant from Morocco. And he was growing by leaps and bounds, but he kind of got stuck at that 150 million because, you know, they, they, he was a high school graduate, didn't really understand the, the, you know, when a business is like over a hundred million dollars, you really do need, you know, real CPAs and accountants and, and a strategy to grow even further. And he didn't have that. So I came in at the right time and, you know, I made a ton of mistakes on, on his dime as well, but he was very uh, generous about that. So um, basically, in that five-year span, I went from like an entry-level person to the director of marketing to VP of marketing to doing, you know, marketing and finance for them. And, um, you know, each time I went from like 150 to 200 million dollars, 200 million to 250, which was which happened very quickly. You know, I got like 5,000 bucks raised, but it came with, you know, 5,000 dollars a year raise. 
but it came with, you know, uh, me working. I mean, I, I went, I left for my work about 645 every morning, got there about, you know, eight, eight o'clock. And uh, I was the first one in, I left about 730, got home about 830. And I took briefcases of work home, you know, Monday through Sunday. So as you can see, you know, the burnout was inevitable at some point. So when you decided to make the shift and start something of your own, how much of thought went into that decision and how long did it take for you to before, before you actually jumped in? Oh, it was, um, <laughs> I want to say it was pretty instantaneous. And in terms of jumping in, um, because my goal was so simple. At that time, I said to myself, you know, my parents brought me to America so I could be whoever I wanted to be and I could do whatever I wanted to do. And yet I was listening to everybody. And I also looked back at my life um, in East Los Angeles, you know, it was really rough. Um, I mean, our whole apartment rent was like $100 a month. So I thought if I could make $3,000 a month and I could work, you know, 20 to 30 hours a week and those hours of my choosing, that was gonna be my dream life. And when I did the numbers, um, 3,000 bucks a month, I didn't think it was completely out of reach. You know, I thought, okay, well, um, in those days, back in 1989, 90, we didn't have internet. We didn't have, um, you know, a lot of things that you take for, we all take for granted, we didn't have it. So uh, we had things like direct marketing, direct mail, all of those, and the conversion rate at that time were like, if you send out a hundred um, direct mail pieces, you'll get 10 people responding and you'll get a couple of people who will actually buy from you. So I thought, okay, well, if I sent out like 50 pieces of mail every day and I got like two people, three people responding like in a month, that was going to be my money. And I didn't think that that was completely impossible to do. And I also felt like in the worst case scenario, and I didn't meet the $3,000 a month. And I only got like 2000 bucks a month. I could live with that. So it wasn't like I set out to create this million dollar business. I just simply wanted to exist and, and you know, just live my life the way I wanted to live. And then, you know, from there took on your jewelry design company and it's come a long way. You know, you're also on Shop HQ now. How has the journey been and how has that evolution been? Was it something that you dreamed of and did it did it meet your expectations and what were some of the ups and downs that you faced so i had um i was i was actually petrified of being on tv um i didn't want to be on tv i i, I just thought that when you're on tv you know everyone's going to know who you are uh, i didn't want that kind of publicity so uh the tv thing uh it took me about six years for me from the time they actually contacted me it took me six years to actually make a decision to go on it because i was petrified of doing that but in the beginning going back to the very beginning times you know uh jewelry is one of the industry that does require a lot of money to start for example you need inventory you need um when you have your inventory you need a you know floor to ceiling safe like that's fireproof and bulletproof and then once you have that, you need like uh, jewelry, insur jewelers insurance and an alarm system and all this stuff that a normal business doesn't have. So it was kind of daunting task at that time. But what I did was, um, you know, when you, um, I would say necessity, when you have no other option, right? You start to invent things, invent ways to get the same job done. So what happened was um, I, 
instead of making samples, <clears throat> sample making costs, samples basically can kill you. You know, it, you, you got to make new molds and all that. And every mold at that time costs about $290 to $1,200, depending on the complexity of the mold. And that's if you knew somebody in the business. So what happened was um, I wasn't in a position where I could have like 20, 30 designs made just to find out what people would want. Right, because that would be a lot of money, and it's very high risk. I mean, it could be that nobody wanted anything, and even if you found three styles that sold, you can't really actually go to somebody and say, "Carry my, you know, my line with three styles." You'd have to do some more. So what I ended up doing was I ended up um, sketching out designs, and I ended up going to um, the, all the major department stores like Neiman, Rebecca Sachs, you know, Macy's. And asked the department store like a managers like if you had something like this that came there, would you be able to sell it? So I, you know I was able to get a very little preliminary um, you know, I guess market research. And um, so you know, what I found is that when you're really vulnerable at that time, I mean I look like a kid you know at that time, and and I was a kid to be honest. Um, and I would just tell people, look, I don't have any money. I really want to start my business, and I'm very excited about like coming up with something brand new. And I'm wondering if you could help me, you know, just guide me a little bit, because I know you guys see a lot of customers all the time, and this is a very expensive area, you know, mm -hmm. where the people buy jewelry. Um, a lot of those department store managers, like they actually did a lot to give me not only information, but they actually pre-sold a lot of my pieces to some of their best customers who ended up becoming like one of a kind piece customers. And so, you know, that vulnerability, uh, just being honest and authentic, I think helped me in those very early years. You know, I didn't even know how to like uh, fib. You know, at that time, I was just so new to the business world, and um, so that was my beginning. And then once I got into the Neimans and the Sachs and the Harrods of London, all that HSN, who was actually looking to upgrade their image, upgrade their brands, uh, and were trying to really get some high-end brands to their stores. I mean, to their TV network. They contacted me. Uh, you know, I was number one performing brand at Neiman's, you know, nationwide. So um, at that time, my risk was well, if I, I mean, HSN was such a, a TV industry was such an in its embryo state at that time. So, you know, if, um, you know, Neiman Marcus, on the other hand, was like sort of like the, the epitome of the status symbol. So if, if I sell the same thing to HSN and it didn't sell, then I would be dropped by all the other department stores. So, you know, I had to, I had to really think about how I was going to do that. And, uh, you know, in those days, there was a real definitive line between the snob appeal companies versus, you know, the value oriented companies. So whatever was sold at Walmart, Neiman Records didn't want it, you know, back and forth. So it took a little bit of um, working with them and coming up with different collections, different brands to uh, maximize all of it. But, you know, in the end, I was, by the time I got to HSN, I was on almost all major airline duty-free, you know, like uh, in-flight duty-free, airport gift shops, um, cruise lines, and all major department stores, you know, around the world. So um, it wasn't like I pitched them, they, they pitched me. And how's business now? It's great. Um, you know, I think once you build that premium brand, so I left HSN in 2017 um, after 19 years and 11 months. You know, I was supposed to have been there 20 years, but because I had a 10-year contract that ended. Um, at, you know, I was over 60 at that time, and I just kind of needed to 
kind of close that chapter. And my intention was completely uh, retire from that TV, you know, because TV is very demanding. Uh, live TV is really demanding on your schedule. And, you know, you just got to be always on. Uh, for every two hours of live TV, there's about eight hours of prep work. That right. I go with that because you can say something, you know, you're really on a judge on a dollars per minute basis. So this is why most TV shows only have two hours a day, you know? So, and I would, I would be on like eight hours, eight to 10 hours a day whenever, whenever I was on. And that is just very intense. So I retired to write um, a book. I've always wanted to, you know, I saw my world through books when I was uh, in Korea and I still did that until, you know, I, I do that until now. Like I, I have just this incredible curiosity about other people, that the cultures and, and I'm not just talking about like reading about books. I just want to have a real conversation with like a real person from these countries. So um, I wanted to write that book. And I thought, you know, if I don't do it now, when would I ever do it? So I went ahead and retired in 2017. And then I wrote my first book, which was a, a science fiction. And then in order to market the book, um, I ended up networking with a lot of different um, editors, uh, agents, and many of them actually saw me, like they knew me from HSN and they're like, you know, why aren't you writing a memoir or how-to book? And, you know, Rajiv, I thought my life, uh, since I lived my life, it's pretty boring to, to me. And I didn't think that that was going to be a very interesting read for a lot of other people. Um, so I kind of poo-pooed it until COVID hit. Then I thought, you know what, maybe I should, um, I mean, there are some things I know that every business owner should know. And uh, my main message is that, you know, your plan A was never supposed to work out, <laughs> you know, really. Um, have you ever watched a movie called The Exotic Marigold Hotel? Yes, I have. Uh, do you remember there was a line, it's my favorite line in, the, in that movie. There was a line there where uh, that, that woman from Harry Potter, um, you know, she was a governess and um, she sits there, there's, there's a, like a, a cleaning lady, like, you know, doing all her brooms and stuff. And they're all like kind of thinking about like what went wrong with their life. Mm -hmm. And uh, somebody said, you know, I did everything I was supposed to do. You know, I, you know, I, I saved my money and I, and I worked my rear end off. I did all this stuff and I'm, I'm here. And she says, well, you know, um, when all those great plans, all those great plans were never supposed to work out. It's after all those things go out the window, the good stuff happens. Mm -hmm. You remember that line? Yes, it, yes. I, don't, it, I don't have the exact line, but something like your plan A is never supposed to work out. Mm -hmm. But after all that go out the window is when the good stuff really happened. And I think that's what happened to me. Um, and it's not just my journey that, that way. It's, a you know, even in my marketing strategy to um, just finding, I wanted, I really wanted to find like a certain customer. You know, I, for example, I, I pitched Galleries Lafayette for years. It, it's like the premier store in France. And I always wanted to be there. And I, you know, they just, they just didn't get me. So they didn't like me. And um, so I just like, okay, fine. You know, I'll just give up on that. And then somehow I ended up at, at Harrods London instead, which was just this. Then um, somebody tried to pitch me to uh, make the stuff that goes to Harrods of London. And he was actually from France. And he was telling me that, you know, they supplied the galleries lab. Yeah, they do all this stuff, you know. And um, so I ended up going to uh, both places, actually, the Harrods and Galleries Lafayette through a back door. 
but by going through the back door, because galleries like that, you know, I was willing to give them just all, all kinds of terms. I was willing to like do anything and everything they wanted me to do, and they still didn't want me. So what, ad, what ended up happening is later on, one of their suppliers came to me in order to supply my stuff to Heritage of London because they were all in the same place. I mean, this company did work for Chanel and all these other brands, and they ended up getting me best terms at the end, and I ended up going there anyway. So a lot of times when something doesn't happen to you, like organically, um, it's supposed to be that way. It's just like when I was in corporate America and I couldn't find a way to, you know, I kept thinking to myself, okay, here I have two master's degrees from major universities and I'm, you know, not only just bilingual, but I'm also multicultural and I'm willing to work my year end off and everywhere I went, I had great, you know, great successes and yet, I didn't understand why I, I kept having to work harder to make less money, you know, like proportionally less percentage of money. And I thought, you know, maybe this isn't cut out for me, you know, and sometimes you got to listen to those little signs and kind of like believe in yourself and take a leap of faith because the worst thing that could happen is you've got to start over. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so the books that you've written, your first one was Shattered Sky, right? And then there's another one right. that, that you've done. It's called, yeah, it's called Million Dollar Hobbies. And so Shattered Sky is a science fiction about, um, and I only want to talk about this just a little bit because I, I want to tell you why I wrote the book. It's not like I just want to go make a you know, million bucks. Basically, um, I have seen uh, human conditions and human suffering from all angles, meaning that you know, when I go to China or uh, when I go to all these other countries where, you know, gemstones are mined and, and cut and, and manufactured, you know, I've seen how some people live on literally like $100 a year and uh, entire families can, you know, live on that. And then I've seen how, you know, people get injured and all that. Um, and, you know, some people actually never complain. I mean, they're very happy to have those jobs to, I see people here in the United States with, abundance of life and yet all they you know they're suffering mentally like complaining about all the things they don't have so I thought you know um I wanted to write a book about what human beings are capable of when they're so pushed so I, I wrote this book which and I you know I'm a huge fan of science fiction but I wrote the book in the future so that it wouldn't be politically attacked it wouldn't be any bias um and the um and the protagonist in this book is a young girl that doesn't really have a lot of experience in life. So she's actually just absorbing and, you know, like uh, seeing things in the periphery. Um, so I wrote the book and, you know, once I, uh, and I told everybody, Reggie, like, I'm a very practical person. So I told everyone, um, I, I've never written a book before. I've done jewelry design all my life. I mean, the only thing I've ever written was maybe a few lines of marketing material, but I haven't even written a blog. So I don't know anything about writing. So just give me some feedback. And I've also heard that everybody's first books suck. So mine probably sucks even more. So you know, I want to get it out of my system. Just give me, help me a little bit about guiding me. And so I, I would just, you know, send it to them. I could, I'm not trying to sell the book. Just, you know, give me some feedback. And it turns out I ended up with um, some great feedback from the publishers of HarperCollins and also uh, Penguin Random House. I actually met them face-to-face -face, and it was selected as one of the 45 um, manuscripts that they wanted to read. And I got some really great feedback. In fact, they had encouraged me to write sequels to the book so I can actually market them as a sequel. And um, then when I wrote my how-to book, 
um, I kind of wrote it more as a blog. It was a series of chapters written as a blog that I was going to put on my website. And when I asked, you know, some of the agents, like, do you think that this could be a like an actual book? And because um, I was just going to self-publish it on my blogs, you know, on my own website. And I approached eleven different agents that I had met in trying to market the how-to book, I mean, the Shattered Sky. Um, they, you know, referred me to some friends who specialize in how-to books, and they're telling me that they could get me a huge advance for my book. So it's right now I'm I'm rewriting the the manuscript. So those two books, but I want to make this very clear to you. On TV, we are sort of I get paid on a dollars per minute basis. So you know, it's it's based on how many dollars you can do on a minute per minute, and these dollars per minute are a very high numbers you have to keep. So Obviously, it's so much easier for me to make money being on TV for another few hours. I mean, selling a book for 10 bucks a copy is not something that's going to make me rich. I know that. But I wrote it because at this point in my life, I feel like, yes, I've, I've worked my rear end off and I've given it my best. But I also feel like that I've been very lucky. Uh, that I was able to achieve my dreams uh, to a certain extent, and that I want to share that. I want to share my experience, all the good, bad, and the ugly, and the the tough part. I want to share that with everyone because I think that there is joy in that. So I'm kind of excited about that, about you know the the release of both books, actually. So this one, the living the American dream your way. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, that is, that's the title has been changed to um, million dollar hobbies because okay. basically I took my hobby to a multi million dollar business. Yeah, awesome. And I have awesome. a podcast that's dedicated for to that. So you know, I bring people who have taken their hobbies like cooking, baking, uh, gardening to uh, multi million dollar businesses. And, and I actually truly believe that if you if you have your heart in it, that every hobby is worth at least a million dollars. And what's the name of your podcast? Million Dollar Hobbies. Okay, awesome. All right. So it's, the book is named Million Dollar Hobbies and the podcast is Million Dollar Hobbies, yeah. So in terms of your jewelry business, is, is that still uh, continuing right now? Yes. Um, if you go to my website, you I talk about jewelry, but there's no jewelry to buy. And that's by design. Um, my jewelry is being sold by so many different uh, you know, people. Like uh, I'm on Amazon, Etsy, um, uh, Shop HQ. Um, it's just all over the world. So I don't feel like I need to push people to buy things on my website. So my website is mostly educational and engagement site right now so you know it's part of my legacy too i don't want to have um you know the whole world is full of people that when you go on a website you know buy this or buy that i mean sometimes when you're shopping for something the pop-up ads come up to buy something else so i felt like you know people just want to chill out and just really actually get educated about anything um and so i i actually have a lot of freebies up there and uh where people can actually just engage and i'm actually upgrading my website this week to uh put in more little videos and because i found out a lot of people don't want to read they want to actually watch a video so i'm doing like little bunch of little mini uh, videos that are two minutes long type thing that they can download for free. 
Awesome. And for people that want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? They can come to uh, two ways, victoriawick.com, uh, where they can find out everything about my journey, about my, my world, and they can sign up for a bunch of different things. Or they can come to milliondollarhobbies.com, uh, where they can uh, really, if anybody's interested in starting a business and you don't know where to start, or you've already started a business and you're struggling, um, I can probably, you know, I could, I usually give like a 20 minute free consultation and, you know, that's true free consultation. You don't have to buy anything or do anything. Uh, I just am uh, sad. Sometimes I can't give you more than that, but usually um, even within 20 minutes, they do get a very clear direction. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, Victoria, you have a tremendous journey, very inspiring. And, um, you know, you're, you're still working on contributing and reaching out to more people and benefiting people, which is also very inspiring. You know, we wish you the very best in your future as you take on these new paths in terms of your writing, your podcasting and reaching out to people. Before I let you go, one takeaway for the listeners, anything that you'd like to share from your experiences? Well, I think that, um, you know, we, when you listen to um, shows like this one, uh, by the way, I love uh, your show in that we all of us have uh, some setbacks in our lives, right? And setbacks are normal and we are supposed to have them. Um, I, I believe that, you know, no matter what religion you believe in, uh, even if you don't believe in religion, I, I think that human beings with these DNA coded to learn from our mistakes uh, and the... Uh, anything like whether it's a mistake or a setback that you didn't design it's a stepping stone to success so the embrace that embrace them and learn from it and um and secondly when somebody has a great story like my story i've i've been told is very inspiring um when i do speaking uh, engagements and I've, i'm being told how inspiring my story is i mean they're encouraged and motivated and inspired and all that but remember one thing, only actions result in something. So take all this motivation from you know whoever, believe in yourself, don't be afraid to take that first step because nothing good ever happens inside your comfort zone. Um, and you know, just embrace everything that life has to offer. And I think that in the end, you're gonna look back and realize, um, it's never, it's, it's really an amazing journey. And I think also when we talk about success, don't think so much about money. Look at my story. I just wanted to make $3,000 a month. Um, and I've overachieved that. I mean, the money was all like real bonus. I, re I really can tell you, I didn't uh, strive for that. But so I would just say that plan B is supposed to be when the good stuff is supposed to happen. And if you're right now listening to this podcast, wondering, you know, uh, and you know what I found too, Rajiv, like the higher your pay is, the harder it is for you to jump, the harder it is for you to actually have a, have a faith in your plan B. But don't be mm -hmm. afraid because um, plan B is when the good stuff actually happens. Awesome. Well, thank you for such inspiring words. Thank you for sharing your story with us. We wish you the very best and we will keep in touch. So thanks a lot for joining today. No problem. Thank you. Thank you.